Dear church family, tonight's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the first 17 chapters of Matthew chapter 1. As you will see, we're going to read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And if you're new to the faith, it's one of those places in the Bible that can be quite confusing. There are a lot of names that are hard to pronounce, a lot of names that you don't know anything about. And children and young people, maybe you can relate to that. So in order for us to be kept engaged during the reading of God's word, I want to give you an assignment. As we read this holy, inerrant, infallible word of God, every time you stumble upon the name of a woman, either you circle that in your Bible or make a mental note. In the course of this word of edification, I will refer back to it and tell you how many women there are in the genealogy. So again, our scripture reading tonight is Matthew chapter 1, first 17 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed. By Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Esa. Esa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Jerubabel, and Jerubabel begot Abayu, Abayu begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud, and Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Mathen, and Mathen begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations generations. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May the Lord add his blessing to it. Let us pray.
Abba Father, we come to you and we cry for help because without the Holy Spirit enlightening the eyes of our hearts, we are just not going to get it. Grace is so opposed to the natural man that we're not going to understand it until you teach us. So Holy Spirit, work in and through me work in and through this dear congregation of sovereign grace that we may come to know something of grace and may we go out from this church singing of that grace to that, uh, from tonight forth for forevermore. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear church family, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament that prophesies, that that looks forward to the coming of Messiah, is Isaiah 9-6. It's a well-known verse, especially during the Christmas season. There, the prophet Isaiah declares, For to us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's a beautiful verse. And many of us know this verse by our hearts. But when you stop and think about it, this prophecy begs a question. Just who is this extraordinary child? Just who is this royal son? Well, a few decades after the birth of this child, Matthew, the text collector, sits down and gives an answer to the question in the opening chapter of his gospel account. But the way he goes about answering the question, the way he answers the question, is a bit unusual, at least to us anyway. Who is this child, we ask? And Matthew hands us to read a genealogy, a genealogy of Jesus. When you think about it, it's the first thing that you encounter when you open the pages of the New Testament. But for many of us, it's not immediately clear as to why this genealogy is here or what it's doing here. The significance and the function of this genealogy can be so easily lost on us when we come to the first chapter of the New Testament. But if we were to answer the question, who this child is, which, by the way, is the most important question you will ever ask in your life, we must understand what this genealogy teaches us about grace. So, dear congregation of Jesus Christ, tonight I want us to look at this genealogy of Jesus as recorded by Matthew, the text collector. Let's ask, by the help of the Holy Spirit, three questions at tonight's text. First, why the genealogy? Second, what is in this genealogy, in this genealogy of Jesus? And third, what does this mean for us? So first, why the genealogy? Second, what is, in this, what is in this genealogy? And third, what does this mean 
for us. But first, why the genealogy? Now, you may think that this is kind of a roundabout way of getting to our text. But as a preacher, I feel the necessity to start here because for so many of us, genealogies are kind of obsolete. They are irrelevant to our day-to-day life. I think one of the reasons why genealogies in the Bible are so strange to us is because they don't play a big part in our lives anymore. I'm sure not many of us woke up this morning on the beautiful day of the Mother's Day and thought about that piece of paper with our family tree drawn on it. We don't think about genealogy when we wake up in the morning. For many of us here in the West and other parts of the world, genealogies have become a thing of the past. Even when I came from South Korea, Genealogy used to be a much more important, but now it is not the case. So just to illustrate that from my own experience, I didn't know that my extended family still kept the genealogy going to this day until I married an American girl. Now, during the heydays of genealogy writing in South Korea, international marriage was not exactly popular or common. So there were no rules and regulations about how to include a foreigner properly into Korean genealogy. So when we got married, it posed a crisis to those in the family who were keeping a genealogy. How do we write Jesselyn's English name properly in our Korean genealogy? Now, I don't know how they resolved that, I don't know what they ended up deciding to do, but that just goes to illustrate the point. It's not my biggest concern how that's done. And I think many of us can relate to that in the way that we see genealogies. Now, if you are interested in your ancestry, that is wonderful. That's great. As I was preparing for this, Message. I came across some services out there that actually help you trace your ancestry line. And some of these services with additional charge even offer to conduct a DNA testing so you can exactly locate from which part of the globe your ancestors came. So this is definitely something that's important to quite a few people. And if you happen to be one of them, I'd say that's wonderful. That's great. You know, when you learn about your family history, it can be quite personally meaningful and illuminating. You understand who you are in relation to your family. You understand where you came from. And that can help explain what you are experiencing from day-to-day life. But again, for many of us, genealogies are kind of irrelevant. So that is, that is why, the, so it's no one, don't wonder why, When we come to Matthew chapter 1, the first page of the New Testament, our eyes start to glaze over. We know this is inspired word of God, every single word of it. But if we're honest, we skim through this part of God's word quickly so we can get some action, which we think that starts in verse 18. But I want to remind you, dear congregation of God, back in the day when Matthew wrote his gospel, genealogies were much more important than they are today. 
In their culture and society, a genealogy was a way, or maybe even the way, of finding your place out in the world. A genealogy was the way of recommending yourself to other people. And I may be overstating the case here, but without the genealogy, there was no way of finding out who you were. I mean, how else would you recommend yourself to other people without the help of genealogy? How else would you present yourself to the world without the help of genealogy? So it was important back then to keep a meticulous record of what ancestors you had in your family tree and having the right names in your genealogy mattered. Now maybe, now we start to see how we may not be that different from people back in Matthew's days. Sure, we may not keep a careful record of our ancestry, but we all have the same basic impulse to recommend ourselves to the world, to prove our worth and significance to those around us. It may not take the exact form of genealogy, but we all have forms of doing so. So let me just give you a couple of examples of of, of how we do this today. The closest thing we have today to the genealogy back then is our resume. Now, children, resume is a piece of paper that includes which school you graduated from or which jobs you held so that your future boss can read over to get to know you and decide whether you are the right fit for the job or not. That's what resume is. Now, some of us may not be interested in keeping a genealogy anymore, but some of us are vastly interested in building an impressive resume. Which school did you graduate from? Which jobs did you hold? Who did you work for? What did other people say about your work? All of these things can so easily become the thing through which you recommend yourself to the world. The thing through which you find a sense that you are somebody rather than nobody. So back in Matthew's days, people may look at their genealogy and say, I know I am somebody because my genealogy includes the right names. But people today, maybe some of us here tonight, may look at our resume and say, I know I am somebody because I graduated from such and such university, because I have had this kind of experience, because I am on this career track. Another example that is close to how genealogy functioned in Matthew's day is our social media profile. Again, some of us may be not at all interested in keeping a genealogy, But some of us are vastly interested in in perfectly curating our social media profile page. Pictures that we choose to post, captions that we choose to write, hashtags that we want to include. Through all of these things, we, we try to craft an image of ourselves, very selectively so, so that people have a certain impression of us. 
So back in Matthew's days, people may look at their genealogy and say, I know I am somebody because my genealogy has the right names. But others of us may look at our social media's profile page and say, I know I am somebody. This is because look at all the attention I'm getting from total strangers. Look at all the likes I'm getting. Look at all the feedback, positive feedback that I'm getting from the anonymous world of the internet. And friends, these are only the two of the countless ways that we do this, that we build a genealogy of our own. For some of us, it may be how our children are turning out. For others of us, it may be how our bank account is growing, how our investment portfolio is faring. I know as a student, sometimes my version of genealogy can often be a school transcript. I don't know if it's Asian in me or what, but being a good student with good grades really matters to me, even in the ways that sometimes surprise me. So again, it may not take an exact form of a genealogy, a piece of paper with a family tree drawn on it, but in some profound sense, we're all building a genealogy of our own. And what's so dangerous about this kind of thinking is that we carry the same idea into our relationship with God. We stand before God and we say, God, look at my genealogy. Look at my resume. Look at my social media page. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my achievements. Look at my good works. Look at my ministry involvement, all the sacrifices that I've made for you. God, you owe me a place in heaven. God, I deserve a blessing from you for my genealogy. God, I'm entitled to a certain kind of life because I've lived this kind of life. And my version of genealogy proves that. Friends, when we understand that we are all writing genealogies of of our own. We should be vastly interested in studying Matthew's genealogy because here is a genealogy from God that will finally teach us something about grace, not good works, not works righteousness. So now that we understand the significance of a genealogy, Let's return to this genealogy as found in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. The question is, what is in this genealogy? Now, I just talked about keeping a genealogy as if it's a, some kind of a bad thing to do. And of course, that's not at all my point. Just as a resume is a good and necessary part of the hiring process in today's society and economy, a genealogy was a good and necessary thing. Back then, in the society where the entire economy ran on kinship or blood relationships, who are you related to is the only sure way of knowing if you're trustworthy or not. So as we're talking about genealogies and making of genealogies and how they can tap into our existential angst and such, we're not at all denouncing the making and the use of genealogy per se. And the reason why I'm saying that 
is Matthew's genealogy right here does get its job done, so to speak. What do I mean by that? It means when the Jews, they sat down and read Matthew's gospel, the first thing they saw was this genealogy. And as they, as they were reading through this genealogy, they would say, okay, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I don't know about this person, Jesus Christ, but he's got the right names in his genealogy, if we can speak reverently. Jesus is said to be the son of Abraham. And we think about Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, when God entered into a covenant with Abraham and promised him of the seed to come in the land through whom there will be a universal blessing to the world. And Matthew is saying in the first verse of his gospel, Jesus is the son of that Abraham. And more importantly, when we read the son of David, we are reminded of 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God entered into covenant with David and promised him, David, I will build you a house. I will build you a dynasty. Your throne shall be established forever and there will be a king forever. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And Matthew is saying in the first verse that Jesus is the son of David. So when the Jews read the first few words of this genealogy, they would say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the coming king. But here's the thing. As they read this genealogy, the rest of the genealogy would have utterly confused them about Jesus. There are some things in this genealogy that are strange at, at best and shocking at worst. Jews would have read this genealogy and they would say, it started out great, but I, I'm not so sure about this man, Jesus, that Matthew thinks he is Christ. But it is precisely there that we meet grace. Friends, I'm sure you've heard of people who've monkeyed with their resumes. They fake their experiences related to job or their school because they want to present themselves as better than they really are. Or more commonly, maybe you have heard of or seen people editing the photos of themselves or photoshopping their profile pictures so they look like someone that they're not. Well, back in Matthew's days, people did the same with their genealogies. So from historical records, we know that King Herod, the contemporary of Jesus, he played with his genealogy too. He took the bad part out of his family tree. But here in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus, the true king, he does not take out the bad part out of his genealogy. He not only kept them in, but as we believe and confess as God himself, he orchestrated thousands of years of human history to make sure three groups of people are included in his family tree. Who are these three groups of people? First, the women. And now is the time that I will reveal the answer to the question, how many women are in this genealogy? 
there are five women in this genealogy. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, there's wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, and Mary. So if you guessed five, congratulations. Good job. But the Jews, when they read this genealogy and found that five names of women were included, they would have not said, good job. They would have not said that to Jesus, and they would have not said that to Matthew, because, and that that reflects something of how the wider society perceived women's value and worth at that time. No inheritance was given to women during the time of Jesus. No court of law took women's words seriously. And even a popular Jewish prayer at that time reflects this kind of attitude. So a devout Jewish man would wake up in the morning, and this is the first prayer he would offer to his God. God, I thank thee that you has not made me a woman. In that day and age, when women were considered worthless, Jesus, the true king, he embraced them in. He welcomed them into his family tree. Second, the Gentiles. We know at least three people in this genealogy are Gentile. That means non-Jewish. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Uriah was a Hittite. And as you may know, um, and as you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you will surely come to know that there is some kind of a, a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles during this time. Especially the Jews, they despised the Gentiles. They called them dogs. They, they, they thought of Gentiles as ceremonially unclean, and they, they, they did everything they could possibly so that they could avoid contacting Gentile. They washed their hands. They dusted off of their feet. They took bath because they were worried that a dirt that had a contact with Gentile would have fallen on them throughout the day. Gentiles were worthless at that time, and no respectable Jew would have wanted names of Gentile in his genealogy. But again, Jesus, the true king, he bring them in. He welcomed the Gentiles into his family. Third and last, the sinners. The sinners. As you read through this genealogy, maybe you recognize some names. Maybe you are reminded, children, of some Sunday school lessons that you have heard. But some of these names, they remind us of the most sordid and immoral stories in the Old Testament. Take, for example, in verse 3, it mentions two individuals, Judah and Tamar. Now, I still remember this vividly. It was uh, last year, around Christmas time. I was having a family devotion with my family, and, and then we, we thought it was a good idea to read some of the names in the genealogies of, genealogy of Jesus. So we got to Genesis 38. It records the story of Judah and Tamar. My two-year-old daughter is listening. My wife is listening. She was pregnant at the time. 
and I'm reading Genesis 38, the whole thing, and then I close the book, and I just blurt it out, wow, that was bad. That was bad. It caught me off guard how fallen human beings were, how wicked these individuals behaved in the story. And their names are in verse 3. These are mothers and fathers of Jesus Christ our Lord. Some of you may say, what about David? You know, David is the name that you would not want to miss if you're going to write a genealogy. David is the name that you want to make sure by pulling every string that you have to, to, to include in your family line. Having the name David in your genealogy will open doors for you. But even David was not an exception. He was a sinner before God. And Matthew deliberately does two things here in this genealogy to make sure that the readers catch that. If you would go to verse 7, Matthew records this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Solomon begot, pardon me, verse 6, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, have you ever wondered why Matthew didn't just write Bathsheba? I mean, Matthew was a Jew. He read his Old Testament. He, he, he memorized chunks of the Old Testament, huge chunks of them. He would have cert- surely known that this woman's name is Bathsheba. But that's not what he writes. Why? Is this some kind of a shameful part of the family tree that he's shying away from? Is this a black sheep in the family that he's trying to shrug under the rug? Is this a slight on Bathsheba for what she did? No. 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 If it's slight, it's a slight on David. Matthew is doing two things deliberately here. First, by clarifying the marital status, the wife of Uriah, not the wife of David, the wife of Uriah. Matthew is reminding the readers that David was a murderer. He took someone else's. David was an adulterer. Adulterer, forgive me. Um, He took someone else's wife. And two, by naming the victim, the wife of Uriah, now his name is forever remembered throughout the centuries as a victim of David's foolishness, Matthew is reminding the readers that David was a murderer. He took someone else's life. So even David did not escape the fact that every single one here in this genealogy, except Jesus, who is called Christ, is a sinner before God. No matter what kind of wealth David has accrued, no matter what kind of reputation he has had, no matter how much of a border he has extended, no matter how religious he has been, the fact remains. And this genealogy is staring at the, at the fact that David and every single one of us is a sinner 
before God. So as you can see, we have here three groups of people. The gender outsiders, the women, the ethnic outsiders, the Gentiles, and the moral outsiders, the sinners. No one at that time would have wanted their name in their genealogy. But Jesus welcomed them in. He embraced them into his family by grace. And that changes everything, friends. How so? And that's where we want to conclude this message. What does this mean for us? We've looked at the significance of this genealogy. We've looked at the genealogy of Jesus itself. And now the question is, what does this mean for us? Three applications. First, the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that there is hope for you. That there is hope for you. Friends, I don't know what kind of life you've lived. I don't know what kind of person you've been. I may not know a lot of things about you, but I know this. In the name of Jesus Christ, there is hope for you. And this genealogy stands as a proof of that hope. The author of Hebrews explains this in chapter 2, of verse, starting in verse 9. He writes, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, for Jews, for Gentiles, for men, for women, for sinners, for everyone. For it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he, Jesus, again, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Friends, look at this genealogy. Look at all these people. Do you think they could have made it into this genealogy? The genealogy, the family tree of Son of God? By their own efforts? By their own good works? By their own accomplishments and achievements? Do you think they had a chance of having their name inscribed in the Holy Scripture? As fathers and mothers of Jesus Christ? No! They had no chance in themselves and all of us too. We stand no chance of standing before God to be included in God's family. We may be looking from the outside of the home, looking into the windows, especially as the Gentiles, the blessings of the covenant, the promises, the land, the new heaven and new earth, the mediator, the law. But we had no way of approaching Near that, we had no way of sitting in the living room, so to speak, and enjoy the Father's presence. But their their names are here. And that means, friends, your name could be written in God's hand as well. And it's going to be done 
only by grace. So friends, if there are those of you who may be despairing, who may be burdened under guilt of your sin, you have sinned yet again, and you don't know if the holy and the righteous God will ever accept you, I plead with you, go to Jesus, your elder brother. He went through the suffering. It tasted death for everyone. And if you respond in faith and repentance tonight, he is yours. And he will not be ashamed to call you brethren. Second, the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that there is rest for you. That there is rest for you. That's what Matthew teaches us, shows us, rather, in verse 17. Let me read that verse for us. Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, this is a very puzzling statement. And many scholars have spilled much ink as to what this verse means. It seems like the number 14 is kind of important, but that's, that's kind of where we, where we end. Now, there are many interpretations out there and, and many good and godly and, and, and respectable pastors and preachers and scholars disagree on this, but I think... This may be what Matthew is intending to communicate, that Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath rest. And this involves a bit of a math. So if you're like me, I don't like math. It may take you a while, but that's okay. It's okay. There are 14, there are three sets of 14 generations, right? 14 generations from Adam to David. 14 generations from David to Babylonian captivity. 14 generations from Babylonian captivity to Christ. Three sets of 14. Now, how many sevens are there? Children, young people, brothers and sisters, how many sevens are there? There are six sevens. Six sets of sevens until Christ. Now, what does that make Christ? You go through a succession of six sevens, and then when you reach the seventh sevens, you come to Jesus. And that's Matthew's way of saying Jesus is not only the perfect Savior, but he is the ultimate Sabbath rest. What does that mean? It means a lot of different things, but every single day, we're building a genealogy of our own. Every single day, we're crafting an image of our own to present to the world. Every single day, we're trying to come up with a better way of phrase things in our resume so people may see and know that we are somebody rather than nobody. Have you ever done that? Brothers and sisters, are you tired of doing that? Are you weary? of constantly having to measure up, constantly having to smoke the curve, constantly having to get ahead. Are you tired tonight? Are you weary of doing so? Then here's a good news for you. Jesus is 
the ultimate Sabbath rest. And Jesus, his arms are wide open, and he, he, he tells you tonight, stop. Lay your weapons down. You don't have to constantly wonder, am I good enough? Am I mom enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I moral enough? Am I religious enough? Am I enough that other people, let alone God, will accept me? Jesus puts an end to that question when he cried out, it is finished. Brothers and sisters, your sins and the sins that cause you to go um, go on this pursuit of finding a sense of somebodiness was put to death on the cross when Jesus shed his blood. And now Jesus welcomes you when you believe and repent of your sin and he gives you rest. He gives you rest. You don't have to trying to be somebody anymore because you are somebody in the only set of eyes that ultimately matters in the universe and that's the eyes of God the Father. And he looks at you, covered in Jesus' blood, and he says, I love you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Your name is written on my palm. You don't have to find a name somewhere else. You don't have to try to make a name for yourself because I know your name, and I will never forget your name. So the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that there is a rest for you. And last, third and last, the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that there is home for you, that there is home for you. Out in the world, in order to fit in, you need credentials. You need qualifications. You need to meet certain requirements and conditions. You need to make sure that you are Worthy to fit in to any sort of crowd that you are looking to fit in in the world. And maybe you experience that in the church too. Sadly, that can happen. No church is perfect. My church, Grace Hill PCA, is not perfect. And I'm sure you would say that Sovereign Grace is not perfect as well. But what is different about the family of God, what is different about the household of God is this. When I look at you, friends, I see a new creation in Christ. You may be men or women. You may be of certain ethnicity or others. You may be in a different stages of life. You may, hold, you may be holding different kind of jobs and occupations. You may be coming from different walks of life. But when I see you, and when you see each other, we see that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. In the family of God, we begin to experience freedom from these external markers that define us by the world. So at Jesus' table, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, sinners and saints, kings and the prostitutes, they all sit down and share a meal together. That's 
what the genealogy of Jesus shows us. That's what genealogy of Jesus pictures for us. And that's why Paul could write in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, look around you. I mean it. Look around you. These are your family. Your names are written in God's hands, and you are now brothers and sisters, purchased by the blood of Christ. So the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that there is home for you. So sovereign grace, dear congregation of Jesus Christ, there is hope for you. There is rest for you. There is home for you. It's all here in this genealogy, the genealogy of grace. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we call you yet again, Abba, Father, and this time we've, we are different because you have spoken to us from your word. That we get to the genealogy of Jesus only by grace and grace alone. And we stay in the family of God only by grace and grace alone. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ And no sin is too great that you would forsake us. But you delight to hear us coming to you in repentance and receive forgiveness and reconciliation. Oh, Father, what privilege we have as children of God. What blessing we have as children of God. Rest, home, hope, all of these things are ours through Christ Jesus. We have just begun to scratch the surface of what this means for us, for each and every single one of us here tonight in our, in our individual life. We are just beginning to learn what it means to live as a child, not a slave. Loved, accepted, obedient, and emulating. Oh, Father, make us your people. Make us your family and go with us into this world. There are many sons and daughters who are lost. Maybe some of our friends, maybe some of our family members, they burden our hearts and they drive us to our knees. So we pray tonight, extend the borders of your family worldwide that more and more sons and daughters may be brought into glory through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And may you use us, Sovereign Grace United Reformed Church, as a beckoning call to children of wrath to lay down their deadly weapons and come surrendering to Christ, for he has done it. And it is 
only in his finished work on the cross. In reliance upon his blood, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.